book 2 of with love from the hills author ruskin bond april 1st i am interrupted in my mid morning reflections by someone banging on the front door as rakesh my grandson was in his bath and beena in the kitchen preparing lunch i had to get up and open the door the usual tourists wanting to meet the local author and be photographed with him grumpily i oblige and then return to my desk but my train of thought has been derailed and i have nothing to say next when in doubt consult the red geranium i need some water says the red geranium summer is just round the corner so i water all the geraniums and the nasturtiums and the pea which is flaunting a little white flower at me well it is the 1st of april and summer should be just around the corner but it's still quite chilly outside and the wind is humming around the old tin roof making it rattle we need a new roof but the corrugated sheeting is far too expensive we will have to put up with a few leaks here and there made worse by the monkeys doing the hip hop on the roof the steps leading up from the road to our flat need repairing too but now there are daisies growing in the cracks so i shall let them finish flowering before doing anything about the steps everyone is complaining about them including the postman must keep the postman happy he still brings the odd check i tell him the broken steps are meant to keep the tourist at the bay but he doesn't believe me warns me against missing a step in the dark and tumbling to my doom like the emperor humayun a knock on the door beena's mother comes waddling in round and smiling she always reminds me of a christmas pudding bringing with her optimism and good fellowship she works all day cooking for a foreign family living near woodstock school today she brings me an irish stew i love irish stew it takes me back to my childhood i could write a poem about irish stew in fact i will if ever i am in a stew old trouble or new i did rather it was irish than senegalese or danish for the simple reason that in or out of season potatoes grow better where it is wetter and it was captain young the first outsider to settle in masuri in 1985 sorry 1825 who introduced the irish potato to these hills but with the result that today every village has a potato field but not many can make an irish stew if i look outside my window i can see the building the mullinger where young made his residence while overseeing the building of the landor convalescent depot at the top of the mountain sick or wounded british troops were brought here during the summer months but as the old cemetery will testify 
not all of them recovered. The Dimpo building still stands, now used by a technological wing for of the defense services. If the spirit of Captain Young, later General Young, came this way, he did have some difficulty locating his old house, now buried beneath a cluster of odd-looking constructions which spill over the slopes of this overcrowded hillock. The Malinga has become a village, almost a township, home to some 300 or more families, a mixed population of locals from the surrounding hills along with Tibetan Buddhists who have put up a small temple on the flat, two families of butchers from the plains, some Muslim carpenters and mechanics, several Dalit families, migrant laborers from Nepal, taxi drivers, small shopkeepers, tourist guides and of course hundreds of children. All this in the last 20 years. A microcosm of India and strangely enough all these people of totally different backgrounds get on reasonably well with each other. It must be the mountain air. Higher up the hill live the rich and the famous. A property tycoon from Mumbai, a sugar baron from Muzaffarnagar, a TV magnate from New Delhi, a publisher, an actor, a couple of hoteliers and a few whose origins are shrouded in mystery. When I say they live here, I mean they come and go, as they make their living elsewhere. During the summer months, Upperlander has its house parties and gossip sessions. But for most of the year, the hillside wears a forlorn look. The houses lie empty. Only the outhouses are occupied by caretakers and their families. The caretakers come from the nearby villages and make a little money in this way, while they send their children to local Hindi medium schools. The posh English medium schools are expensive and cater mostly to their business classes. Some like Woodstock are residential and charge fees ranging from 6 to 8 lakh rupees per annum or possibly more. Definitely not for the locals. Apart from our residents, we do get summer visitors catered to by three or four guest houses on the hillside. Yesterday, I saw a familiar face at my door. It was Anupam Kher, the actor, a good-humoured, friendly man who spent an hour with me reminiscing about his boyhood in Shimla. My school days were spent there too, although much earlier. Much earlier. Anupam Kher is bald like my father, but this only accentuates his good looks. We talked about the Russian writers, Dostoevsky, etc., and their apparent melancholy. I attribute it to vodka. Talking of vodka, the Russian ambassador, Alexander Kadakin, had me over for tea at the Savoy and in our parting presented me with a bottle of vodka. 
nothing of the melancholy about Mr. Karakin. A good-humoured, friendly soul with a passion for Indian hill stations. He gave me a handsome book of sketches made in his made in this area by the Russian traveller Prince Alexey, sorry, Alexey, Alexey, who visited Masuri in 1841 and stayed in the Himalayan club. Subsequently, he visited the temple towns in South India, making hundreds of drawings and paintings of considerably charm and beauty. They have been brought together in a handsome volume, which carries an introduction by our friend the ambassador. Talking of princes, an interesting visitor not so long ago, the Maharaja of Travancore, or rather his son, now in his late fifties, who collects old gramophone records, preferably the tenors or baritones of the nineteen thirties and forties. Recorded the seventy-eight RPM disc, which were part of my childhood. He has thousands of records and a large number of old gramophones, but I did have to visit his home in Travancore in order to see his collection. He gave me a DVD by Richard Tober, singing Schubert, and promised to send me one. uh kali kaliapin recordings i have fond mem- memories of my father's wind up gramophone and the pleasure i used to obtain from changing needles winding up the machine and listening to jolly sea shanties and grace fields singing over the garden wall the golden age of the gramophone the old shikari in those days one of my neighbors was colonel a n w powell an old shikari he had written a book called the call of the tiger which was quite readable and comparatively free of the exaggeration that one would uh, one found in most shikari books my first encounter with the colonel retired in his late 60s occurred when i was wandering through the woods that surrounded the old powell estate seven oaks as i emerged into a clearing i was startled to see a leopard standing in the glade i was about to make a hurried retreat when i stopped by a cackle of human laughter and a large florid man dressed in khaki emerged from the bushes went up to the leopard stroked it on the head and wished me good morning it's only stuffed said the portly gentleman i like it here to frighten away the monkeys otherwise they are all over the plum trees won't leave us with a single plum but monkeys are terrified of leopards even a stuffed leopard will do the trick if there were several monkeys on a tree and a leopard stands below and lets out a roar at least one of them will fall to the ground in sheer fright just enough for breakfast the gentleman in khaki then introduced himself and i complimented him 
on the realistic and lifelike appearance of his leopard. On closer inspection, it turned out to be a rather worn and weather-beaten trophy. But from a distance, it had looked real enough. The good colonial then strode off in order to enjoy his own breakfast, which, I learned later, consists of six eggs, boiled or scrambled, large, several large sausages, three or four toast with marmalade, all washed down with the best of Darjeeling tree. The colonial's ponderous paunch bore witness to his ample appetite. In his hunting days, he had been a slim and athletic young man, or so he told me. After this retirement, he had let himself go, but he still walked into town three or four days a week, mainly to call at his bank or the post office. Whenever we met, he would engage me in a lively conversation, usually dropping some hint of a local scandal. He seemed to know everything that went on behind closed doors. There goes Neela Rani, the Blue Queen, waving his walking stick in the direction of a heavily decorated lady retreating down the steep hill road. Any number of affairs when she was younger and still on the lookout for a young man. Be sure to keep out of her clutches. He had, he had invented a contraption of sorts which could imitate the mating call of a leopard, which when, into, when put into operation resulted in the approach of a sex-hungry male. And then you have him in your sights and bang, there's a dead leopard at your feet. This device consisted of a square wooden box, rather like a hat box, with a thick strand of wire running through a small metal-lined aperture. When you pulled on the wire, it emitted a sound almost exactly similar to a leopard's when on a prowl. When I expressed my skepticism, he insisted on giving a demonstration. So, we climbed to the summit of the ridge behind Wenberg Allen School, and positioned ourselves behind some rocks. The colonel then had his device with him and proceeded to pull his wire back and forth, pro producing an eerie sound, which he insisted was a leopard's mating call. Nothing happened for half an hour. I took a turn with it as well, without any result. But the colonel persevered, and presently, as it grew dark, we heard an answering call from the forest. Nearer and nearer it came, until to our alarm, it was just behind us. We looked up, and there sat a large leopard, looking down at us from one of the rocks. Not having a gun with us, we made a rapid retreat to the safety of his house, Wayside Hall, the colonial complaining all the time that the leopard was supposed to come uphill in our direction and not down upon us. Perverted beast, he grumbled, tried to mate with us from behind.
should I should have brought your gun along i said but the colonel had long since given up hunting and became a member of project save the big cat april 3 down to dera for the day in the valley spring is giving way to summer here and there the dark a flame of the forest flaunts its scarlet blossoms as they appear from the leaves they stand out sharply the scent the scent of mango blossom fills the air wild patches of lantera lanterna and agratum a bluish purple flowering weed that brings color to hedges and empty plots outside the town there are many splendid and beautiful trees but with all the building that's going on their existence is threatened the house that rakesh and bina built at gajwala village beyond the cantonment is ready but unoccupied at the present no not quite unoccupied we open the door to be greeted by a flurry of wings we have disturbed a colony of sparrows who have taken up residence they are in and out of the skylight which was left open well it's nice to know that there are still some sparrows around we don't see many of them these days insecticides or cell phone towers appear to be the cause of their diminishing numbers so we leave the skylight open for them they can use the house until we move in next winter lunch at the yeti where i have my fish and chips at least thrice a month india is the last bastion of fish and chips england have having been taken over by the tandoori brigade and the uttarakhand our state has up to adopted chowmein as its premier dish there's globalization for you someone wants me to visit dubai for a lit fest i'm not very keen on lit fest and even less on dubai i was there a couple of years ago an artificial city without a history and hence without a soul everyone did their best to make me comfortable even to the extent of taking me to an irish bar where we drank scotch whiskey and ate italian food served by a filipino waiter but everything was too new and glossy including the palm trees no one on the roads only cars so do i go for the lit fest consult the red geranium duly consulted red geranium says go only if you want to so that's settled then lit fest are a fairly recent phenomenon but they have caught on like wildfire and and every city or large town in the country has to have one if they resulted in more readers i did welcome them but for the for the most part they are all talk shows or talkathons with everyone wanting to make a statement often political about something or the other or nothing in particular basically 
There are two kinds of writers. One who writes for purely commercial reasons, that is, with the reading public in mind, and one who writes in order to express himself, that is, the compulsive or born writer, for whom commercial considerations are incidental. I suppose I fall somewhere between the two. I have never written for the reading public. It would not come naturally. I am afraid, but at the same time, I have always welcomed the money that has come to me through my writing. It has enabled me to do the thing I enjoy most, putting words to, pap to paper in a pleasing way as in in a in as pleasing a way as possible. But for the young writer who wants to make writing his vocation, it would be useful to decide if he is going to do it for money or for literature. Doing both can be difficult. Ward House was a great entertainer and he, he certainly wrote for money. So did Dickens. The Brontes, sorry, Brontes, the Brontes, Wordsworth, Keats, Virginia Woolf and Conrad never made much money. But they wrote magical prose and poetry. You couldn't stop them from writing. These are my heroes, the ones who wrote because they felt compelled to do so, even though they had to scrape a living from working as school teachers or shop assistants or contributors to little magazines. Think of Keats and Emily Bronte, both consumptives, writing their hearts out even as their bodies gave away from pain and disease. Virginia Woolf, Refusing to pander to popular taste, her books barely selling, finally, finally in despair, walking into the waves and going out with the, with the tide. Joseph Conrad, writing one great book after the another, to reach fame and a little financial security only towards the end of his days. And then there were others who suffered in order to pursue their calling. Dostoevsky, Maupassant, D.H. Lawrence, Ghalib. The writers I have mentioned were men and women of genius and genius is inborn. Talent is something else. We all have a talent for something or the other. It could be football or technology or yoga or just playing marbles. And some of us have a talent of writing. So, can anyone of modest, so, sorry. So, can anyone of modest abilities become a writer? Yes, of course. Hundreds and thousands of mediocre writers have come and gone and been and been forgotten. They weren't bad writers. They had learned their craft. Some of them were highly successful. But only a few have left their mark on the passage of time. Those few had something beyond talent. They had passion. A passion for living. A passion for words. I think Tolstoy summed it all up when he said, One ought only to write when one leaves a piece of one's flesh in the ink pot 
each time one dips one's pen. To which I might humbly add, there is something to be said for ink pots and the hand that held the pen so firmly. It must be far more difficult to share one's body and soul with a typewriter or a computer. I abandoned the typewriter long ago. I did not have the same sensuous quality as the pen that rests so gently in my hands. Now, so much a part of my hand that I find myself reaching for it when I am half asleep. April 10th I wake up to hear the windows rattling. Look at my watch. 2 a.m. A sudden squall, high velocity, high velocity winds hit the mountain. The roof groans, tin sheets keep banging, something breaks, loose and glides downhill to land on the road. A bit of my roof will have to collect it in the morning. Reminds me of the storm several years ago when most of the roof blew away. But that was winter and the snow drifted in and settled on my counterpane. In another cyclonic storm, an old deodar tree fell on a school dormitory, killing three children. This storm isn't so bad. It's over in an hour. The wind departs, the clouds part and at 6.30 the sun streams through the window. The geraniums, the nasturtiums, the fuchsia, all well protected. I look outside the window, an agitation of car horns. My bit of roof has blocked the road and no one is willing to move it. Well, let him wait.